0: You're listening to the Max Planck Lawcast, which showcases the academic research currently being conducted across the Max Planck Law Network. I'm your host, Christopher Murphy, and together we'll be talking to some of the more than 400 researchers who are pushing the frontiers of legal knowledge in Germany and abroad. When it comes to new and exciting legal research, the Lawcast has you covered. Well, thank you once again for joining us on the Max Planck Lawcast. It's safe to say that the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine has tipped decades of European defence and political thinking on its head. With war once again raging in Europe, the continent's leaders and political institutions have been forced to rethink long-held concepts of defence and security. If this wasn't enough, questions about how Europe should approach the growing political and military influence of China are also high on the agenda. Is the European Union's security architecture prepared for this new geopolitical age? To talk to us about these fascinating topics, I'm pleased to be joined today by Carolyn Moser. Carolyn's a researcher at the Max Planck Institute for Comparative Public Law and International Law in Heidelberg, where she's the head of the Max Planck Research Group Ensure, which stands for European Security Revisited. Carolyn, welcome to the program. Hello. Hi there. So, we've got a a lot of ground to cover today, uh, lots of interesting topics here to work through. One question that I had on my mind, and I guess we have to go back to 2022 and the lead up to the Ukraine invasion, was that Europe as a whole seemed so surprised by Russia's invasion. Why was this?
1: Well, when in March 2022 I interviewed some EU decision makers in Brussels, one of them replied the following. He said, and we asked the same question, why were you so unprepared? And then he said, we were so busy managing peace that we forgot to prepare for war. Now, this might sound a little banal, but I think it hits the situation quite on the nail. For many years, actually the EU, many member states and also citizens have just ignored that the world was not such a peaceful place, at least not outside of Europe. And so they have not really spent... A lot of thought about promoting defense policy or making defense capabilities ready for the 21st century because they were very much used to peace, basically. Mm-hmm. And so they also didn't want to spend much more money on defense because there was simply no war on the horizon.
0: Yeah, that's true. That seems to be a, a common for decades. Or a, it was it's just like, oh, the NATO budget, 3%. No, 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 no. We don't want to meet that. And a very few countries did meet that, Correct.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, this had been agreed upon already more than a decade ago, and only some European member states met the 2% goal. And what was more was actually that the European Council, which is the European institution bringing together the heads of state or and government, They were consumed by other crises. I mean, we first had a financial crisis, then the matter whether we need to bail out states, then there was migration on the table, then there was COVID. And so there was actually little energy left for dealing with defence, which, as I just explained, was not seen as a priority because there was simply no threat of war close to the European Union's borders. And also probably because of that conception that threats or war was something that would be taking place abroad. So basically in Africa, elsewhere, faraway places, there were also some genuine intelligence failures prior to the war in Ukraine. Actually, most intelligence agencies of continental European countries had not really foreseen the attack. They were aware that something was going on, but we didn't really think Rationally, that this would happen. The only ones that were really warning was the US and the UK. And given that in 2003, the US information about what was happening in Iraq in the end turned out to be false, Europeans were also very skeptical about this warning. And they thought maybe it's another instance of we being misled. But they weren't. In the end, there was an attack. And so they were also surprised. Because they simply also didn't have the intelligence information they would have needed.
0: Okay. Yes, I remember, I think even Ukraine was saying, hey, Washington turned down the talk of an attack. It's not really happening, you know. And they were pushing, the Americans were really warning, but uh, everyone else seemed to be sleeping at the wheel.
1: Yeah, I mean, the US and the UK, as I said, were less sleepy. And they had already started delivering weapons before the attack actually started smaller weapons but the other european countries were much more reluctant poland obviously was also quite afraid given that it has a border with ukraine and the baltic countries were also quite afraid but still i think the majority of eu member states they were just hoping that this would not become true and i think they were taken by surprise not only because it happened but because their idea of europe just being a continent now in peace and and that war wouldn't return just crumbled and i think it's conceptually also difficult for them to swallow this that they were just wrong that war can return to europe And that it's not because you integrate that these things cannot happen anymore, at least not at your borders.
0: Mm -hmm. Sure. So then, where does that leave Europe as a whole? Obviously, they're going to now have to realign the way that they view security, they view peace, they view the fact that war can again happen in Europe. Exactly. What has the European Council, the European Union now been undertaking to deal with this new geopolitical reality?
1: Yeah. So you mentioned the European Council, again, the European institution that brings together. Heads of state and government, after 15 years of basically showing no interest in security and defense, they have now defined security and defense as a top priority. So they have met several times since the war started, far more often, actually, there were urgency meetings also. And now when they meet and they issue their conclusions at the end of their meetings, I would say roughly 80% of what they discussed relates now either to the war in Ukraine or to security defense, more broadly speaking. So you can really see a shift in prioritizing that topic.
0: Okay. And previously, that would have been probably under 10%, I'm guessing.
1: Yeah. Uh, when you look into the different conclusions before, there were two exceptions between, I would say, 2006 and 2022. This was when Russia annexated Crimea. Then we had some more talk about security and defense. And when Europeans decided to launch what is called PESCO, Permanent Structured Cooperation. Then we had some conclusions that basically, in comparison to all the other crises I mentioned previously, there was very little talk about this topic. So this has changed at the high level of policymaking.
0: Okay, so that's the European Council and that's the heads of state from all the members of the European Union member states.
1: Exactly, heads of state and government, yeah. And then we have also seen another significant shift that was decided by the council. This is also where member states meet, but it's where, for instance, their ministers meet. So ministers of defense or foreign affairs.
0: Ah, yes, okay.
1: And they have kicked off the European Peace Facility, to support Ukraine. So this European Peace Facility was put in place in 2021. And that is because according to the EU treaties, you cannot spend EU money, that is EU budget, on activities that have military or defense implications. So in the past, member states needed to find a way to make sure that when they were sending abroad soldiers for EU Military operations, there need to be some funds available. So they put in place a mechanism and then they reshaped it and created the European Peace Facility. And the idea in the beginning was that this money would finance military operations abroad, for instance, naval missions in the Gulf of Aden or military training missions in Mali. And then there was another branch that was to support third countries for security purposes stabilization. And with the war in Ukraine, this second dimension, the second pillar, the support pillar is now being used massively to refund member states that send military equipment to Ukraine. So initially, this peace facility had 6 billion euros for five years, 2021 to 2027, And as by the end of 2022, almost 5 billion euros had already been earmarked for Ukraine, member states now had to increase the fund. They did this to 8 billion, leaving the door open that they could add another 3.5 billion if necessary in the future. But what that means is that the EU is now, via this peace facility mechanism that is not part of the budget, it's off budget, they are massively financing military support that member states provide to Ukraine, and that's really a novelty.
0: Yeah, that's right, when we say military support, we're also talking about uh, lethal military support as well. And that was something that was envisaged when the European peace facility was set up, or was it more uh, of a non-lethal ideal, What the kind of equipment or services that we purchased with it?
1: Prior to the war in Ukraine, the EU had only delivered non-lethal weapon systems, and what is more the eu had never delivered these non-lethal weapon systems to war zones so now we see two shifts one is the decision to also deliver lethal weapon systems and the other one is obviously to deliver to a war zone and that's really a big paradigm shift and what is important also to mention is that in that policy field security defense all decisions have to be taken by unanimity so all member states need to agree And when the discussion came whether the EU should be financing the delivery of lethal weapons or not, or even allow this, some member states constructively abstained. For instance, Austria, they said, we do not agree with this, but we will not prevent other member states from moving forward. And that is also interesting to see so that this disagreement did not prevent the union from acting and doing this paradigm shift.
0: Okay, right, yes. But they didn't, uh, was it constructively abstained? Is that what you called it? Yes, exactly. Okay, right. Um, I see. And when we're talking about the European Peace Facility, you've said that a lot of the budget's already been spent or earmarked for spending and they will in all likelihood increase that and this is something that they w- would read daily about the cost of the war in Ukraine, the human cost obviously, but also purely the amount of munitions being fired and used. It envisions that this is a permanent facility that will be added to on a regular basis then
1: well that is a tricky question as i mentioned before it was already increased once and there's the possibility of increasing it once more and maybe multiple times more the contribution to this european peace facility are based on national contributions because it is exactly not part of the eu budget so member states need to channel their money into the fund and it's on the basis of uh, of the gross national product Mm -hmm. so some member states pay much more than others and this obviously also means that within their own constitutional systems they have to negotiate this so it has to go to the different parliamentary committees which have to agree that you send more money to this fund okay Uh, so far we all agree that we want to increase the fund and make sure it can still be used to help ukraine um the situation might look different in two or three years, depending on how much we have already spent. But we already see that the EU is trying um now different paths to make sure that there will be enough money to continue supplying Ukraine with what it needs to fight the Russian aggression.
0: Don't go away because we're going to have plenty more for you after this short break.
2: Max Planck law is a network of 10 Max Planck Institutes engaging in legal research. The first of these was established in Berlin in 1924. Today, we cover a broad range of legal studies, from the anthropology of law to tax law. We operate one of the world's largest programs for doctoral and postdoctoral research in law. Visit our website today at law.mpg.de.
0: Welcome back to The Lawcast. Thanks for listening to us today. Well, I guess that that brings me to my my next question here, whilst we're talking about the European peace facility and the purchasing of um, munitions uh, or purchasing of of supplies for Ukraine. There's been a lot of talk in the media now about jointly procuring millions of rounds of ammunition for Ukraine. Where does this then fit into the bigger picture?
1: So end of March 2023, member states decided that To really make sure that their help to Ukraine is sustainable, they need to deliver ammunition. And they decided on a three-track approach. Track one is that member states send to Ukraine what they already have in their stocks, and they get it partly reimbursed through the European peace facility. Track two is, as you mentioned, that member states start to jointly procure ammunition. The idea behind is that when you procure jointly, you get a better price on the world market, and then you can send it off to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So this is already quite a novelty, because joint procurement of defense material was something that was not really thought of before the war. And then a third part of it, track three, is that the European Commission was asked to think about legislation that in the mid or maybe even long term, would help to improve production of ammunition in Europe. And I think this track two and especially track three is the most innovative part of it, that we will have legislation which will make sure that there's enough ammunition. This proposal was um, discussed by the commission only this week, actually, on the 3rd of May. And it is quite something in the sense that the European Commission starts to really put its foot into the door of security defense. And here I should say that before this, this was not the case. Security defense is a national prerogative.
2: Mm -hmm. This
1: is also why the institutions in charge are those where representatives of member states meet. And the war in Ukraine has somewhat changed this in the sense that member states have proactively reached out to the commission to say, please also provide the necessary legislative framework to make sure that within the realm of the European common market, we make sure that we have enough in place to support Ukraine or maybe prepare for the next war. And this is something we have never seen before.
0: So that's what you would, I guess, call a a seismic shift then in the fact that the EU or the European Commission is now saying, we're moving into this area of defense, which has previously been one of the sacred cows, if you will, along with taxation, for instance, where the EU didn't go.
1: Exactly, so the commission obviously was interested in this part uh, for quite a while, and it created, only some years ago, a new DG, a director general, that is specifically dealing with matters of security defense and also space, And so, this was already a hint that the commission was thinking that this was a new important strategic field of European law and policy, but the commission can only intervene when it's about market issues. And this is also that the recent proposals, also in ammunition, has to do with defense industries. So, this is how the commission slowly moves into this policy field.
0: Mm -hmm. But They definitely have very good lawyers there that move the law a little bit, quite malleable. (laughs) <laughs> and and what is yeah.
1: also fascinating is not only that they start legislating in that field they already have um two or three proposals that they one is still uh, under negotiation that is about also joint procurement but in the latest proposal they made which is called a SAP, uh, which is um, the abbreviation for Act for Producing Ammunition, but I think the abbreviation, the, the acronym is already quite telling that it's called A SAP.
0: A SAP anyway, with a B, as in submarine.
1: No, with a P. Oh, with a P, like, with a P. Uh, yeah, so as soon as possible. And oh, okay. Everybody made fun of this in, 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 in the circles, but I think it's quite telling. And what this new proposal says is that we will also tap into the EU budget. So we will use EU budget to help the defence industry to be more effective and more efficient. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this is a big shift.
0: Yeah, certainly. Well, I mean, when you're talking about these big shifts, maybe the biggest shift of them all, and you hear from it uh, from time to time, but then it seems to disappear again, is the discussion of a European army. Is this move to joint procurement the first step along the line to having a, a continental army?
1: Depends. I think actually the term European army is used very often to convey – an idea of what Europe is or what it could be, but it's more of a fancy term. Having a European army is so far nothing um, that we can realistically envision. There are too many steps between where we are now and a full-fledged European army. But what we see is that Europeans have gotten aware that so far they have dealt with this in a quite inefficient way. Each member state on its own and without much um coordination also regarding defense industrial projects and here we really see a change whether this will lead to a european army in the sense that most citizens will understand i'm not sure probably it will more be about making member states champions in specific fields of defense where they already have quite developed capabilities in operational activities or in defense industries but what we really see is a shift of conscience that we need to Improve our capabilities and we need to do it jointly.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, speaking about jointly and dispersing capabilities amongst those who are best suited for certain roles and tasks, um, that kind of sounds like what we have at present, courtesy of NATO. Where does NATO fit in here?
1: Yeah, tricky question. So, what the war in Ukraine has shown to Europeans is that European security and European defense largely depends on. The support of the united states they have been really crucial in supporting ukraine it's by far the biggest donor of military equipment financial aid humanitarian aid
0: well and truly right i mean if i look at the statistics it's an incredible amount that they've given to the next contributor
1: yeah it's it's really it's really impressive mm-hmm. and it again shows to europeans that nato at the time being is the guarantor of european peace And indicative of this is also that Sweden and Finland, two neutral states, have applied for NATO membership. Mm -hmm. So they have given up a policy that they had adopted for many decades, uh, for Sweden even two centuries, because they realized that without being a member of NATO, it's getting really tricky for Mm -hmm.
0: them. They've given up the policy of neutrality, basically.
1: Yes, exactly. However, the US support for Ukraine and its incredible interest in European security is, I would say, more of an exception than of a rule. And that is because for some years already, the United States have changed their priorities under President Obama, the so-called pivot to Asia took place. So the United States said, Europe is not... Any longer our priority in terms of security defense policy, but we want to further orient the United States defense strategy towards Asia, where there's China, obviously. Mm -hmm. And the question, I think, is now rather how long will the U.S. still maintain their very high level of support to Europe? And what will happen when this support will decrease, which is very likely to be the case at one point. Mm -hmm. We know that there's U.S. elections coming up. We do not know who will then move into the White House. It might be somebody like Donald Trump, who does not like at all the transatlantic alliance. It might also be Joe Biden, who might be pressured to decrease the help to Ukraine, because it is a lot of money that is also missing in the budget of the United States.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, actually, especially as we say around election time, this is often a sore point with schools and roads and whatnot. And then we're giving, uh, spending a lot of money elsewhere.
1: Exactly. So, Europeans know that at one point they will have to rethink their security, not without NATO, but with a different kind of NATO, one where there's probably less US involvement. And so far, I think they are shying away from this reality, most European member states or governments, they are still hanging on to the idea that the United States will just maintain their security guarantees in the way that they have done for the last decades since the Second World War, basically. And this is not going to be sustainable.
0: Okay, right. So the European states are going to have to step up to the plate and spend more money, have larger armies, and rethink the way they view security.
1: Yes, exactly. So there will be a lot of talk about more defense spending. And the fact it's not spending for the sake of spending, it is because most European armies are in a completely desolate state.
0: Yes. (laughs) That sometimes uh, seems quite shocking, as you say. Yeah, A desolate state is probably a very good way to put it.
1: And the other issue is that if you cannot... Count on the transatlantic support as you have in the last 70 years, it means that you also have to conceptually rethink what security defense means for you and where your priorities are. Mm -hmm. And there has been a lot of talk about European strategic autonomy and independence. For instance, only last week, the Dutch defense minister said Europeans should be really aware they need to be more independent. At the time being, there's no clear agreement on what this precisely means and how much US support there will still be, or for instance, buying US equipment to make sure that the US is somehow still linked to European security. Member States disagree on this. Ooh, but at one point they will have good. <laughs> No, but at one point they will have to face this issue that okay. they will have to be courageous enough to realize that they cannot just carry on as they have done in the last 60, 70 years.
0: Sure. And I don't know, but obviously, you know, Europe, a very broad uh, basket of countries, Uh, some of them will be fairly loath, I can imagine, to take on more responsibility or or to give up America as a partner, whereas others might welcome this new European-focused concept. I mean, obviously, different member states feel differently about the future need here to ensure their own security.
1: Yes, obviously, and this also has rational grounds. I mean, when you are Estonia, uh, you know that your security depends on the United States guarantees because European armies are not in a state to defend you. So obviously, this changes your perspective. And many member states that have a border with third countries on the Eastern Front, they are very fond of the United States staying in Europe and maintaining this relationship. Poland is another example. So you can also see that their geographic situation is important for how they view this. And then obviously there's countries like Germany, which for historical reasons have a specific time with the United States and are for the time being not really willing to revisit their transatlantic stance.
0: Okay, right. Yeah. So you mentioned before some of the Southern European countries, let say France, Italy, probably Spain as well. I mean, they obviously have large military sectors as well and capabilities. Where does this kind of leave Germany? I mean, you just pointed it out, it's often referred to economically as the engine of Europe, but for historical reasons, it doesn't seem to be at the forefront of this kind of new geopolitical debate. And has often in the last months been accused by other member states of dragging its legs here. Does Germany not want to be part of the debate?
1: Yes and no. So I think there's two factors here. Traditionally, Germany is not really a security and defense actor, as you mentioned, for historical reasons. So since the Second World War, Germans have been rather reluctant to increase this part of their foreign policy apparatus. Let's put it like this. And that has a consequence. It's a second aspect. Mm -hmm. It also means that they do not necessarily have the capabilities in military but also political and maybe even intellectual terms to be part of this debate. For many years there has been a debate in academia that the Germans do not have a strategic culture, that at the time being they do not have the capabilities to imagine what it will look like, the European defense landscape in 10, 20 years. But if you want to shape the debate, you need these competences Mm -hmm. and states like france or also the uk who have a big army with a lot of traditions they do have this kind of strategic competence and i think that is really important the reluctance of germany in the war in ukraine became very visible when we discussed delivery of weapons so just four or five days after the aggression had started the council decided to deliver lethal weapons to ukraine so actually at the european union level where 27 member states need to agree it was extremely fast and then germany for each time that we were discussing the supply with new weapon system or let's say bigger weapon systems there was first this idea do we really need this and if so how can we organize it and for me a very interesting moment in time was when The Chancellor Scholz conditioned the delivery of a specific form of German tanks, the Leopard 2, on the United States also delivering their tanks, Mm -hmm. which was completely um, absurd. uh, Exactly. mm -hmm. I mean, we have discussed it previously the United States is by far the biggest supporter of Ukraine, also in terms of military equipment. And then you have Germany asking the United States to do even more so that they will deliver tanks. Mm -hmm. And I think in Germany, this is often not discussed, but this has tremendously negatively impacted on Germany's reputation as an international actor because they seem to be not reliable and mm-hmm. they seem to be very reluctant on these issues, which I think they are.
0: Right, okay. So it's not just they seem to be, they are. Um, and I this, mean, sorry, go on. Th-
1: the truth is also that Germany in Europe is one of the biggest supporters of Ukraine in terms of financial support and the end also military support. So funny enough, in the end, they do actually help a lot, but the political debate is not really reflecting this. In the political debate, it is, should we eventually deliver more or not? So this, I think, is also an ambiguity in German political life that the true action of the country does not really reflect the way that we talk about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I sometimes think that, because uh, I read a lot of international media as well, and definitely, I mean, uh, it came across that Germany was kind of damaging its reputation with these discussions. And unfortunately, you know, there's talk about the 500 or 5,000 helmets or something at the start, which everyone kind of laughed at. And then uh, the Leopard 2 there, um, and all kinds of other systems. It's always this kind of head scratching in Berlin first. Can we, should we, whatnot? Yeah, it certainly seems that probably all this good stuff and then the money you save from the GDP perspective that they're giving kind of gets forgotten about it and- at all it's only these kind of more negative debates that remain so i think uh they definitely need a better pr officer or something like that to uh kind of get this across that hey no we are part of this alliance and we do want ukraine to succeed fighting back this invasion Yeah, but
1: on this point just a small reminder most countries officially say we want ukraine to win and the German Chancellor mm. has this phrasing that says, "We don't want Ukraine to lose."
2: Oh, okay. I mean, it seems <laughs> so, to be
1: just yeah, a small difference, yeah, but the symbolism yeah. of this is quite strong. 100%, and yeah. I think that's actually a nice summary of what we we're discussing before. That there is this big reluctance in Germany about security and defense issues. Now we see it with the war in Ukraine, but it goes beyond this. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be a big challenge for the country to overcome this static idea of security and defense and that you basically don't change and even if the world is changing you can adapt slowly i think the world is changing so fast Mm -hmm. that slow adaptation is not a solution to the problem any longer
0: okay very well put well let's move to another theater of challenges and that's uh, to china i guess you know if ukraine's not in the news all the time then it's china and taiwan how's the eu positioning itself to deal with an increasingly assertive China?
1: Um, So here I think we should differentiate between the EU and its member states. So the EU for some years has changed its tone, and you see this in a lot of policy documents where China is clearly labeled as a systemic rival um, in the sense that it is proposing a different form of economic model, but also political system, and that – this, let's say, system that they propose is not really compatible with the European system. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: However, member states do not necessarily align with this new EU position. And that is also because China is a big investor, for instance, in their infrastructures. So here we see that there's not enough, I think, coordination and cooperation at the EU level on how to deal with this very touchy, subject and
0: okay so at the EU level it's more of a well we're seeing China as a a rival uh, probably a partner as well but also a rival whereas the member states are saying no uh, partner first Uh, we have business interests and I guess China also has business interests in a lot of countries as well in Europe
1: yeah and that depends on the member states so um, the Netherlands have been quite critical of China. And they have, for instance, said that they weren't producing chips in China anymore. And they have also been quite outspoken about China being a systemic rival. Mm -hmm. Germany, for instance, is much less outspoken on this. There's currently a new China strategy being drafted. And you can see that between different ministries, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Ministry of Economics, the Ministry of Defense, there's different perspectives on this. And Germany obviously relies on China. It's a very big market for German exporters. So they're also in this limbo. And we only recently have seen that there was a discussion about selling a part of the port in Hamburg to a Chinese investor. And even though the European Commission warned the Germans of not doing this and other member states too in the US, the Germans still agreed. So you can.
0: Sounds a a bit like Nord Stream 2 all over again.
1: Yeah, some say so. Others say it's just a pragmatic way of dealing with China. It depends always on your perspective. But I think what we can say about China is that we have not yet found a common position on this.
0: In in Europe as a whole.
1: Yes, in Europe as a whole, and it will be in in Germany.
0: Yes, even Germany as a country seems to be okay, because because I mean Germany in particular, I mean is a very large exporting nation. It seems probably to be one of the nations most likely to be caught in a kind of geopolitical catch twenty two here with China being firm, but also being heavily entwined economically. Uh, Are there other states that also face this challenge or have some been also at a national level more assertive towards China? I mean, you mentioned the Netherlands, uh, anyone else in Europe?
1: Um, I mean, it depends on how big China is, how big the Chinese market is for your country. And it is very big for a lot of European countries. Or not only in terms of exporting, but it's also a very important supplier, especially in the field of IT and, uh, and new technologies. And member states are aware of this. So it's a, a little paradoxical. Sorry, Also, for, for instance, the energy transition, you need products produced in China to make sure that you need to rely less on foreign powers to have energy security in the future. So it is now a very difficult situation where you understand that it is a rising power that is not necessarily sharing your views on the world and international law and human rights on fair competition, but you still need to deal with this partner because you partly rely on on China. And as I said, we simply do not have a strategy for this yet, and we do not have a common understanding of the risks that is posed by by China. And now the new label that many Europeans give to it is not decoupling, but de-risking. So what that means is that you do not actually free yourself from Chinese imports, but you make sure that they are, for instance, not important for your critical infrastructure.
0: Okay. So there's a lot more of this onshoring again as well. We're looking for certain infrastructure that we're not reliant on China.
1: Or certain products that we think should be produced in Europe. So again, here the new concept is de-risking mm-hmm. and i think that's already quite telling about how europeans now want to deal with china because it is a huge economic actor yeah. you can simply not uh, absolutely ignore or shut off
0: no, that's right yeah well i see that's definitely a debate in a state of flux that we're going to have to return to in a later podcast that's for certain once things have hopefully calmed down somewhat here in europe okay i think we could probably talk for days on this but our podcast time is coming to an end are there any last thoughts you wanted to add
1: Yeah, I would say two. One is that what we see now in the Union Defence is that decisions are being taken very fast. And we have seen this in the past in different crises that the EU had to face, financial crisis, but then also, for instance, in the pandemic. And it will be interesting to see how these quick fixes, many of which are also intergovernmental, outside the classic part of EU law, how they will at one point be integrated into EU law. This is something, as as we have seen before, with the financial mechanisms put in place. And tied to this is another observation, namely that in security defense, many things happen first on an informal basis, or let's say they are not really part of the treaties. So there's a problem and needs to get fixed. Then decisions are being made and actually solutions are found. So you have a lot of structures in place, initiatives, policies, and only later on, they actually become part of what we call primary law. So for me, it is fascinating as a researcher on this topic to now track all of these developments because it is like a laboratory of what primary law might look like in 10 or maybe 20 years. And that's really fascinating.
0: Okay, yeah, sure. The classic kind of scramble to find a solution and then to, uh seems to be sometimes a European specialty, and then making the laws or achieving a legal paradigm which, which works for these changes that were made at the time there.
1: Exactly. But uh, Europeans are actually quite skilled at this, so I'm I'm rather confident. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. One hundred percent. I remember there was a European banking crisis there. I mean, they 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 definitely found something. So as you say, they they're very adept at, uh, <laughs> at doing this. Well, um, yeah. Thanks so much, Carolyn, for coming onto the program today and sharing your insights here. I found it exceedingly interesting and some really important issues. And uh, I think we're going to definitely have to have you back again. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Lawcast. If you'd like more information about Max Planck Law, or if you'd like to get involved, please visit us at law.mpg.de.
2: Max Planck Law Excellence in Legal Research.